that here's a meal. Have a bite to eat and go back to sleep. By the way, sometimes the best thing you can do spiritually is have a bite to eat and go back to sleep. Somebody ought to say amen right there. I mean, come on. It's a Baptist church, I thought. Now, the Bible says here that he had a bite to eat, he went to sleep, and he woke up, and he, the Lord said, what are you doing here? He said, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left serving you, Lord. Now, Elijah didn't have real-time news like you and I have. He didn't have Facebook with 3,000 friends. Elijah didn't have the phone that he could pick up and call a friend across the state and say, hey, could you just pray for me right now? I'm going through it. Elijah really thought he was the only one left. I mean, it looks like it when you've got 400 to 800 prophets of Baal against one. It looks like it when it didn't seem like there were anybody else standing with him. It looks like it when Obadiah, the servant of, 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 of Ahab, uh, hid the prophets and, and the rest of the prophets Jezebel killed. That's what it looked like. It looked like he was the only one left. You know what the Lord did? The Lord said, when you get down off this mountain, you're going to anoint Ahaziel to be king over Syria, Jehu to be king in the place of Ahab, and Elisha to be your prophet in your place. And that's where I'd like to focus, on Elisha. Look at 1 Kings chapter 19, verse number 19. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. I, I want to talk to you tonight about double portion faith because that's exactly what Elisha had. He had double portion faith. Now is not the time, ladies and gentlemen, to slack up. Now is not the time to get uh, weary and faint. Now is not the time to retire. I am burdened, Brother Ivan, for my generation of preachers that we change from being maintainers to being builders for the Lord. I'm very concerned about that. I'm concerned that preachers and Christians sometimes get in a rut and they just begin to maintain. Well, guess what happens when you maintain? You, go, you digress. You're either in forward gear or you're in neutral. And if you're in neutral, you're sliding downward and backward. And if we don't move forward for the Lord and do great things for God, the Bible says they that know his name shall be strong and do exploits. Exploits means something big for God, something great. I like what Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigator, said. He said to young people, young people, don't ask your God for little plastic trinkets and little, little uh, cheap toys. He said, ask your God for continents and for entire nations. That's what we ought to be doing. I want to challenge each of you to say, God, help me to do my part to reach every single person in Brookings with the gospel, to give a track, to somehow give a witness, to give my testimony to every single person in Brookings. Wouldn't that be a powerful thing? It'd be a wonderful thing. I heard about a preacher down in Kansas that said he was going to get a gospel track to every single person in Kansas, all 700 of them. And, and uh, I think that's a very noble uh, uh, adventure. Now, folks, listen here. What a wonderful thing it would be if we just say we're going to win our whole nation to Christ. There's 350 or 325 to 350 million people in America. We ought to be praying for thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions to be saved. That's what we ought to be praying. If one million got saved, it would be a drop in the bucket compared to 350 million. Do you know that when the Welsh or when the prayer revival of 1858 took place, America was at a downturn economically and it was the most, one of the, it was the most powerful awakening that happened in our nation's history. Powerful. 
1858, there was a downturn economically and men were milling around the streets of New York figuring out how they could increase their bottom line. And a man who was burdened about it all said, I'm going to go to prayer. He was a, a man who, who was a, a lay missionary. His name was Jeremiah Lanfear. And he said, I'm going to get these men to praying and seeking God instead of seeking gold. I want to get their priorities right. Now watch, this is how it happens every time with revival. One person realizes what really matters and he gets his priorities right. And then he tries to influence the others around him. And that's all Jeremiah Lanfear did. He scheduled a prayer meeting in the upper, uh, upper story of the, uh, of the Reformed Church there in the consistory building there in Manhattan, not far from, uh, not far from uh, where Wall Street is. And right there on Fulton Street, he had a prayer meeting. It was very sparsely attended. Just a few people showed up. At first, it was just him. But towards the end of the hour, they had an hour-long time during lunch break, there were steps on the steps coming up, and there were about six that showed up. The next week, there were 50 men that showed up. The next week, there were 80 to 90 men showed up who were mostly unsaved men that were lost and on their way to hell. The next week, there were so many people they had to move locations. And watch, then they started to meet in a daily way every day at noon, praying, seeking God for revival. A businessman from Philadelphia came up and he, he went to this prayer meeting and he said, this has to happen in Philadelphia. And so he went back to Philadelphia and he started the largest prayer meeting in the history of our country and possibly the world. At noon, it spread from New York to Philadelphia over to Cincinnati, over to Cleveland, Cincinnati, over to Chicago. And for years, Brother Ivan, I thought the prayer revival primarily affected the, the northern part of America. That wasn't so. That wasn't so. Do you know that it went down to Charleston, South Carolina? It went down to, to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It went down to Memphis, Tennessee and Nashville and spread through many of the southern cities. This is 1858. You know what happened within the next 10 years? the Civil War, where over 600,000 Americans would lay down their lives, many of whom were reached through the prayer revival. Do you know that when that took place, there were, there were hundreds of thousands of people that got saved in the prayer revival? Why? Because somebody started to pray and seek God and seek the hand of the one that could move the heart of the king. Now, folks, we need to ask God to do that again in our country and not ask God for a little pittance, not ask God for one or two. Praise God for one or two. I'm not undermining the individual, but we need to ask God now for our towns and our cities. I'll tell you, when I'm here in the Midwest, I get so burdened. I get so burdened because I grew up in Minnesota and I see the cities all across Minnesota and towns that are in desperate need of the gospel. Somebody's got to reach them and only this generation can reach this generation. And I want to say that we need to have a double portion faith. Let's notice three things about it. Number one, there was a heavenly call in Elisha's life. Hear it. There was a heavenly call. 1 Kings 19, notice what the scripture says in verse 16. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. Watch this. And Elisha, the son of Shaphet, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Now look here and listen carefully to what I'm about to say. God's work will go forward with or without 
Dwight Smith. God Almighty doesn't need Dwight Smith. Dwight Smith needs God. And everyone in this room needs to understand that. God doesn't need you. You need God. Let me go so far as to say, God doesn't need Bible Baptist Church. Bible Baptist Church needs God. And if everyone here will have that mindset that God's work is going to move forward and truth will be perpetuated from one generation to the next, but he uses people and he wants to use me. And if he's not going to use me, he's going to use some other willing servant. And so here, God said to Elijah, Elisha is going to be the prophet in your room. Watch verse 19. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphet, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. Now note, this, this heavenly call was given by God. It was God who initiated it. It was initiated by God. And I want to say that God is still calling men and women today. Last night I was watching a video by a missionary statesman named Don Sisk, and he was speaking about the need for world missions. And I'll tell you, my heart gets stirred. If you think the need for, for, for the gospel getting out is big here in this state, in South Dakota, it's huge the world over. I mean the world over. 60 million Italians. Do you know how many, how many Bible-bleeding Baptist churches preaching the gospel there are in Italy? Twelve. That would be like going from Maine all the way down to Georgia with 12 churches. There are 12 more that are reaching the American military stationed in Aviano and other places in Sicily and in Pisa. But 12? 12? And that's just Italy. We haven't touched the 1040 window. That area where there are thousands of languages that don't have one page of Scripture translated in their own language. What are we going to do to reach them? We've got to have a vision that is bigger than our own problems and bigger than our own troubles. Now, I want to say emphatically, if you're here tonight and you're lost, the heavenly call for you is this. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The heavenly call for you is this. You must be born again. The heavenly call for you is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, you desperately need to be saved. Your works will not do it. Your ritual, your baptism will not cut it. Some of you may think that because you were sprinkled as a little baby in some church somewhere, or confirmed, or catechized, or dunked, or whatever, that you're going to go to heaven. If you're trusting in that my friend let me say it so no one will misunderstand you're going straight to hell that will not get you to heaven it's never washed anybody's sins away it is against what the word of God says is salvation the Bible says salvation is this he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life in other words if you're not saved right now you need to come to the cross and believe that Jesus died and was buried and rose again and that that and that alone can wash your sin away. If you're trusting in something else or a priest or a preacher or a denomination or a religion or a saint, it's not what's going to take you to heaven. So the heavenly call for you is to be saved. And I'll tell you, it is so urgent that if you stood up in the midst of this service and raised your hand or just raised your hand and said, Preacher, I need to be saved, we'd stop everything. We wouldn't be bothered in the least and we'd help you on the spot to Jesus. It's that important. It's that important. Do you know the only time God says to be saved? right now. He never says get saved tomorrow. 
He says right now, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. The only time that God says to be saved is right now. He never says tomorrow. This is what he says. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as well. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. The time to be saved is right now. But I want to challenge. If you're here tonight, the heavenly call may be touching your life. For some service within this local church, it's certainly touching your life to go into the people of Brookings and areas surrounding with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You say, preacher, this is the good old Midwest. We're all set. Mm -hmm. You know, the very first revival I ever preached, Brother Ivan, was down in North Sioux City, South Dakota. It was 1992. And do you know I could stand on the front porch of the church in good old Heartland, USA and throw a rock and hit seven casinos. There was so much gambling going on. We had numbers of people come to Christ that week, mainly young people. And do you know when they came to Christ, they were coming out of the dregs of sin. There was a girl that got saved there that week, a teenage girl who had been molested by her dad and by her granddad. And do you know why? Because that kind of filth goes on when there's gambling. Gambling is the hotbed for every kind of foul, evil, and vile rot that pours out of the devil's cesspools. I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, heartland or not, Midwest or not, this area needs the Lord. Who's going to reach him? He's a preacher, that's why we hired Ivan Yoder. You know, there's a word for that in Hebrew. Baloney. Now, I believe the pastor ought to be the example in winning souls to Christ. I believe he ought to be the spearhead in winning souls to Christ. But if he's the only one in the church body that does it, that church body's in trouble. Big trouble. They're in big trouble with the Lord. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Go. And some people say the very last words that Jesus gave to his church were go. That's not true. The very last words that Jesus gave to his church were 70 years after he said go. And he comes in Revelation 2 and 3 and says, repent. You know why? Because they weren't going. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. God's put it upon us to go. And you can go to your neighbor. You can go to someone in this town. You can go to a neighborhood. What about the trailer park just adjacent? What about the neighborhood and the houses that are being built up in, in mass over here to, to, to the side of the church? Somebody needs to go with the gospel to them. But watch, God may want someone in this place to surrender to full-time ministry. And God laid Elisha upon the heart of Elijah and Elijah found him plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Now, I've... I'm speaking to farmers here right now. Twelve yoke of oxen. Is this a small farm or a big farm? Small farm or big farm? Big farm. If he's got twelve yoke of oxen, he's not a poor little farmer. He's a rich farmer. He's got a lot going for him. And he found him plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. By the way, you know what he found him doing? Working. God seldom uses a lazy person. 
If you're lazy, God seldom uses a lazy person. He found him working. Bob Jones Sr. said it's a whole lot easier to direct a moving vehicle than it is one sitting still. And that's true. So he found him working. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. Now the mantle was uh, a symbol of the prophet. It was, it was a certain garment that he would wear. It was the way that he, it was the way that he would display his, uh, his, his, if you will, office as a prophet. So it was initiated by God, this heavenly call. But watch, it was declared by the man of God. He cast his mantle on him, verse 20. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? Now I wonder about that question, Brother Forsberg, when I read it. I wonder if maybe Elijah was on the early stages or cutting edges of uh, reverse psychology. (laughs) He said, well, I've got to go kiss my father and kiss my mother, and then I'll follow you. And Elijah said, go back again for what have I done to thee? It was almost like he was talking him out of it. Someone came to D.L. Moody and said, what's the most significant thing you've done in the ministry? And he thought for a moment, he said, talk 10,000 laymen out of getting into the ministry. Now, why did he do that? Because he wasn't wanting people to get mama called and daddy sent. We're talking about a heavenly call that is initiated by God, but the man of God is the one that that sparks it and declares it. He cast his mantle upon him. And when Elisha said, well, I've got to go kiss my father and kiss my mother, he said, what is that to thee? What have I done to thee? Verse number 21, and he returned back from him and watch this, took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen. So in other words, he was symbolically saying, I'm leaving this work. I've been called to something higher. I'm leaving this work. I've been called to something more eternal. I'm leaving this work. He boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people. So he learned right away the importance of serving. And they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. I want you to notice that this was initiated by God. It was declared by the man of God. And it was yielded to by the subject, Elisha. It was a heavenly calling. And God wants someone here to do a work. What's what's your response going to be? Hey, God has to initiate it. The man of God has to declare it. But the servant of God needs to be the one who responds to it and yields to it, number one was a heavenly calling. Number two, there was a horrible climate. A horrible climate. Used to preach your house. So, all right, look, let's just see uh, what's going on in the Facebook feed right now of Elijah. I can tell you it's not very good. Look at 1 Kings chapter 20. Then Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his hosts together, and there were 30 and two kings with him, horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and warred against it. This was a city in Israel. So you have Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and he's always coming against Israel. 1 Kings chapter 21, notice what the Bible says. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And one day Ahab came down and he said, hey, he said, uh, said, Naboth, he said, would you give me your vineyard? I'll give you a fancy price for it. And Naboth said, it's not for sale. He said, this belonged to my father and to my father's father. It's not for sale. You know what Ahab did? He didn't yield. 
to the will. He didn't sense and see the ancient landmarks that had been set up. He went home and sat down on his bed and had a pity party. And Jezebel came in and said, what's wrong, big boy? He said, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard and I really want that vineyard to make a garden of herbs. And Jezebel said, you're the king of Israel. You can have what you want. I'll get you that vineyard. No, there's only one way she could do that. Illegally. And so she did. She sent messengers and a message to those through those messengers to the city officials that they were to take Naboth out. You can read it. It's all right there in 1 Kings 21. They were to falsely accuse him of blasphemy and they were to stone him and his family. And then she'd go take the deed to the property from the bank and give it to, give it to her husband for a, a, for, a, for a Father's Day gift or for a Christmas gift. What a tragedy. What a sorry lot these two were. Watch, watch. This was the time that Elisha was called. When Ben-Hadad, a drunk king of Syria, was always troubling the cities of Israel. When Ahab was the king of Israel and Jezebel was the wicked queen. And then the Bible tells us that this was a time of betrayal and treachery and falsehood and lies and murder. Sound familiar? You know, sometimes I look back in history and I say, it'd be nice to go back when D.L. Moody was alive. D.L. Moody, by the way, was a product of the prayer revival. He was saved in the late 1850s. But I'd just like to go back and look in. That was their time. That was then. This is my time. This is now. I can't get into some special car and go back to the past and see what's going on there. God's given me now. God's given me a time when, when pedophilia is being questioned as whether it's a legitimate release. When homosexuality is promoted. When Satanism seems to be coming out of its ugly hole and promoted in our culture. This is the time that God has given me. Now I could sit back and curse the culture all day long. What God wants me to is to do is shine the light. And you know, there's really nothing profitable that comes from cursing the culture and cursing the darkness. But there is something profitable about shining the light. Anybody can point out the problems of the culture. It takes somebody of character and somebody of spiritual walk and somebody who is a man or a woman of God who can make a difference in the culture. And you know how you do it? One soul at a time. I like the story about the little boy who was walking along the seashore and he was taking a whole bunch of starfish that had washed up off the seashore during the tide. And he'd pick up a starfish and he'd throw it out in the ocean. And he'd pick up another starfish and he'd throw it out in the ocean. They were still alive. They still were wiggling and wriggling a little bit. And a man saw him there and said, son, he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to throw every one of these starfish back in the ocean and save their life. And the man laughed and he said, look at this kid. He said, there's hundreds of them. He said, you can't make that much of a difference. He said, you'll never throw all of them back. He said, what kind of difference do you think it'll make? He picked one up and he threw it out and he said, it made a difference for that one. But folks, how about that attitude? Now look here. I found this as people grow older. You excuse me, I speak with respect to the gray head. But I found this as I'm growing older and I'm only 45 that I can become plagued by cynicism and jaded by the wickedness and the culture. And I can become looking at the problems instead of the solutions. 
cursing the problems instead of bringing the solution. And what's the solution? It's one person and his name is Jesus. And we ought to go from one person to the next, to the next, to the next and say, it'll make a difference for them. It'll make a difference for them. Some will respond with faith. Some will respond with just thought and analysis. Some will respond with unbelief. But we just have to keep going and going and going. I'll tell you, the culture's not going to be changed by people standing back, pointing out the problems and listening to Fox News all day. Can I get a witness right there? Mm, the preacher stopped preaching, gone to meddling. I'm simply saying, somebody somewhere has to say, hey, I'm going to take my pocket and I'm going to fill it full of gospel tracts and I'm going to go somewhere in town. How about Walmart? It's called the saving place. And I'm just going to start passing out tracts. By the way, you want to start, start trouble for the devil? You go out about 10 o'clock at night. Now, I know that's foreign to these farmers who get up so early in the morning. Well, I was preaching in Newport News, Virginia recently with the Victory Gospel Crusade, these tent meetings that we've had over the last several years, and we were helping a church get started. And, and, uh, and I said on Friday night, I said, let's go cause a ruckus. I've got a friend of mine up in New England in Worcester, Massachusetts. Big old guy. He's probably, he's probably 250, 275 pounds at least, and he's got a moped. Now just picture that. And he goes out on Friday night from 10 till 1, and he creates a ruckus. He calls it the gospel ruckus. By the way, 10 to 1 at night is a good time to find sinners. And then he's got a friend of his named Ian Brown. I talked to him today. Ian is a, just a huge bodybuilder, preacher. He likes to work out. And he's squatting, he's squatting two, 300 pounds easy. And, and he's got a moped. I don't know why they chose the moped. I mean, if I were them, I'd have said, how about a Harley Davidson? But anyway, he's got the moped. And then Ian has a brother named Aaron, and he's six foot something, and he's got a moped. And they're riding around town on Friday night from 10 till 1 trying to find sinners. You don't have to look far to find sinners. So I said, I want a part of this ruckus. I don't want to be standing aside for them to get all the credit and all the rewards and all the crowns. Give me a piece of this action. So I went around on Newport News, Virginia on a Friday night and we found a, 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 a nightclub called The Alley. People pouring out, drunk as a skunk and high as a kite. We'd give them a gospel track and the first question they'd ask us is this. We hadn't even done this. We'd give them a gospel track and they'd say, you think what we're doing is sin? Well, since you asked, yes, I do. But I know all of us are sinners and all of us deserve hell. And I'll tell you, all of us are objects of the love of God and God wants to save you. Isn't that interesting that the first question they'd ask, those drunk, high sinners had more sense than some compromised preacher that can't figure out whether drinking is a sin or not. Praise God. And so the conviction of the Holy Spirit was all over them. And I'd give them a gospel track and we'd have opportunities to witness and give the gospel to people. And I'll tell you, some people were, were scared. You know why? Now they've got to drive home. They said, would you pray for us? I said, let's pray right now. We prayed over the hood of one of them on a Jeep and we just asked God to give them safety and that he'd spare their life long enough so that they could get sober and they could trust Jesus as their Savior. I want to tell you something. You know, we're not real far from people that get drunk as a skunk. South Dakota State University? Or are they all sober over there? Hey, someone needs to go create a gospel ruckus. You know what I found, Pastor? That what the longer we spend with Christians, and when we only spend time with Christians, it's not healthy for the Christian. 
What's healthy is when we spend time with Christians every time we meet and every time the doors are open, but we go out amongst the lost and we seek to reach them with the gospel. Oh, and we've got the power of the word of God. We've got the Holy Spirit. We've got the, we've got the power of the gospel. And you know what some of us are acting like? Some of us are acting like we got a squirt gun and that's it. And really, we should be ashamed of our unbelief. Here he says in 1 Kings chapter number uh, 21, he says, he, he says, I want you to go. And he said, I, I want you to follow me. And so Elisha did. But by the way, it was a horrible climate. Quickly, finally, I want you to notice the humble consecration of Elisha. The humble consecration of Elisha. Now look at 1 Kings 19. 21. 1 Kings 19, 21. It says at the end of the verse, Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Now let me say this for everyone's benefit. God has called every person in this church to minister to the pastor. He's called everyone in here to minister to the pastor. Not one, not two, and to minister blessing, not cursing. Some people, I think, have the ministry of discouragement. <laughs> God's not called you to the ministry of discouragement. God wants you to hold the hands of Moses up. And this is your Moses. God tells three commands in the book of Hebrews chapter 13 for the church to respond to the leader of the church. And the leader of the church, the local church, is the pastor. He says, remember them that have the rule over you, salute them and obey them. So the way that you minister to the pastor, watch this, is by hearing God's word and obeying it. That's the greatest way you can encourage the preacher. Hearing God's word and obeying it. <laughs> That'd be a blessing if the preacher could find some people that would do that. And no doubt there are plenty in this room. But if you and I drift away from God, we don't listen to the preacher. We hear what he has to say. Close the Bible before his sermon's up. Roll our eyes when we come to a point that we don't really agree with and leave during the invitation. That's not ministering to the pastor. That doesn't fall under the category of remember, obey, and salute. But the Bible says that he ministered unto him. Do you know in another passage it says that Elisha, watch it, washed the hands of Elijah. Interesting, isn't it? You say, well, what was wrong with Elijah? Why couldn't he wash his own hands? Well, I don't know exactly the context, but I think that's a sure sign of humility. I have a preacher friend of mine. Don't, don't, don't lose me now and think I'm gone heretic. But a preacher friend of mine over in Minnesota, and he says, I'm a Baptist. He said, I don't believe in foot washing. He said, but I got to studying that thing of foot washing one day, and he said, I decided we we're going to have a foot washing service. He said, because I figured it would weed out the proud. Good. He's washing the hands of Elijah. Interesting, isn't it? That's some humility. Now I want you to notice what the Bible says from 1 Kings 19 and verse 21 to 2 Kings 2. Guess what? There's no mention of Elisha. But you know what he's doing that whole time? Ministering to Elijah. Several pages. Two or three chapters. Ministering to Elijah. In silence and obscurity. Hey, I might be speaking to some younger preachers here right now. I want to tell you, before God will ever use you, he'll tuck you back in a 
quiet little place and he'll expect you to serve in obscurity without having a thousand followers or 10,000 followers on Twitter. A.W. Tozer said, before God uses a man greatly, he wounds him deeply. That's true. Charles Spurgeon said, before God uses a man, he takes the, beats the stuffings out of him and brings him low in a place of humility. And I want to say this, that's exactly what God did with Elisha. He tucked him away and he expected him to serve. So he's serving in silence. No mention of him. Watch, he's ministering in 1 Kings 19, 21. There's no mention of him for the next two or three chapters or four chapters. 2 Kings chapter 2, here he comes. Look at it, 2 Kings 2, and we'll fi finally wrap this all together. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elisha went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. You know what he has? Watch it. He has humility and he ministers to him. He goes into obscurity and silence where he doesn't have to be the top dog. He doesn't have to be number one. By the way, any preacher, any time of his life, if that's all he wants, there's a problem. A preacher's called to humility. And in 2 Kings chapter 2 now, Elijah said, I'm leaving, I'm going to Bethel, you go back. And Elijah said, this is the Dwight Smith translation, you're going to have to beat me off with a stick. Verse 3, And the sons of the prophet that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou not, knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it, hold, your, hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophet that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. You see what's happening? People are trying to pull him away from the prophet, pull him away from Elijah, pull him away from his master, pull him away from his, his influencer, pull him away from his mentor. And he says, Nothing doing, nothing doing, nothing doing. He has intense loyalty. And you know what the Bible word for loyalty is? Faithfulness. And God has called me to be faithful in several ways. He has called me to mirror His faithfulness to me. Wow, what a high calling. He's called me to be faithful to Him. He's called me to be faithful to others. I'm to be faithful to my wife. I'm to be faithful to my children. I'm to be faithful to the body. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. What if my index finger, my first finger of my right hand decided tomorrow morning, I'm tired of this gig. I'm tired of this body. I'm going to go jump ship and go just be an independent solo body. I say, what's wrong with you? Right? No, 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 no. I need you and you need me. This finger is not going to function very well if it's severed from the body. I have a friend who's a, a preacher down in North Carolina, and a few years ago he cut his thumb off. He was, he was actually riding a, 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 a motorcycle with his son, a motorbike, and it, 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 it stalled and it all of a sudden took off. And it had a tendency to do that. And so to save his son, he pushed his son away, away from the bike and his thumb, his left thumb went down in the chain and it severed. And it didn't just clean cut, it severed and twisted, pulled it out. And I happened to be in town. So I went to Charlotte where he'd been taken to the hospital. And he's over here and his thumb is over here on ice. 
Now, I'm not the sharpest crane in the box, but something's going to have to happen quick. We better try to put this thing back together. Now, it ended up that his thumb, they did surgery and they just couldn't because it was not a clean cut. And it would have been a great place for infection. So now he's got nine fingers. I'll give you a high ten or a high nine. Anyway, uh, he, he's, he's, got, he's got four fingers and he's got four fingers and a thumb. That's all he's got. But you know, that thumb's not going to function without him. And he can function without that thumb, but makes a difference when he's trying to play baseball, when he's trying to golf. You and I take things for granted. By the way, folks, I can function without uh, certain parts of my body, but it's not going to be the best way. We need each other. And by the way, let me say something to you. I am called to be faithful to you. I'm duty-bound. Out of duty, I should be faithful to you. Out of faithfulness and love for the Lord, I should be faithful to you. For good sense, I should be faithful to you. And because it's right, it's what's going to help the cause, I should be faithful to you. And you know, he has this faithfulness. He says, you, you get away from me. He said, I know that, that the Lord's going to take him away from me. You see, there's intense loyalty. And then look at 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 9. Excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 6, Elijah said unto him, Terry, I pray thee here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. They two went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophet went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. The very people trying to get him to give up on his mentor, give up on the, the, the man that had shown him the right path for several years and several chapters, now they're going to come watch him as he follows his mentor. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, the waters of Jordan. And they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. Now this happened at the Red Sea with Moses, and it happened at the Jordan River with Joshua. It hasn't happened since, and it won't happen afterward. This is a mighty miracle. In verse 9, it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. This is double portion faith. Lord, I want God to, I want God to bless me twice as much as he did the former generation. And by the way, let me say, Elijah wasn't cursing Elisha's generation and Elisha wasn't cursing Elijah's generation. One was passing the baton and one was respectfully receiving the baton. And now in 2 Kings chapter 2, the Bible says in verse 10, and he said, thou hast asked a hard thing. Watch what he has. He has a hungry faith. Do you have a hungry faith? Or have you been so fed on the junk food of this world, you just lost your appetite? So sickened by some sinful infection, you've lost your appetite. He has a hungry faith. And the Bible says in verse number 10, he says, Thou hast asked a hard thing, nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. By the way, hey, Elijah becomes at this point just like Enoch. He walked with God and was not. He becomes a picture of the rapture. That's how the rapture is going to happen. All of a sudden, we're going to be walking along and boom, here comes here comes the Lord. Takes us up. And now the Bible says in verse number 12, Elijah saw it. That's what was required. He had to see it. And he cried, my father, my father. Do you see? This wasn't just loyalty for the sake of loyalty. This was a deep love. 
if he would have missed his father. Wait, wait, I thought he said when Elijah called him, let me go kiss my father and mother. But now he's developed and forged such a strong relationship between his teacher and he between his master and he between Elijah, the prophet, and he that he calls him, my father, my father. I want to say something to everybody here. There needs to be that kind of loyalty and love for the pastor. And are you ready? The older men in this church teaching the younger men. And the older ladies in this church teaching the younger ladies. That's the way New Testament Christianity propagates into the next generation. It's not just the pastor. It's the pastor leading and following the leadership of the Lord and preaching the word of God. And then it's the older Christians that have been saved for a while. Hey, do you know something? You're older than me. You've been saved a little longer. You're older than me and haven't been saved as long as I have. Guess what? You've got something that I can learn from. And I want to learn it. I'm a blank page. Don't assume that I, I can't learn. Don't assume that I know everything there is to know. I need help. Guess what? Guess what I need help with right now? I need help with raising teenagers. Can I get a witness right there? I need help with raising kids because I've got kids. And I'd like for some older Christian to say, you know, this is a lesson the Lord taught me when I was, when I was raising kids and when I was raising teenagers. I'd be an open book right on me. I need all the help I can get. You said, preacher, you're the preacher. You don't need to know anything. Are you kidding me? I need help from the Lord. Guess what? Somebody in this room has already gone through a straight stage that somebody else is in. And they need somebody to say, hey, let's go out for coffee. I just want to tell you something that the Lord taught me, something that I wish I'd have known when I was back then. Well, I could help. I could get help from that, couldn't you? And do you know what the younger generation is supposed to do? Thank you so much. I appreciate your willingness to teach me. It's not always in a Sunday school lesson. It's not always in a Sunday school setting. Sometimes, ladies, it's over tea. Some of you older ladies could take some of these younger ladies aside and say, man, you're busy. Look, all these little youngins and ankle biters running around. It's crazy busy in your life right now, isn't it? And that's the way truth is passed on from one generation to the next. And guess what? It's not just mentor, tutor. It's this. It's, I love Elijah. He's gone. My father, my father. And then notice what the scripture says, verse number 12. The chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. That means he wasn't going to use his own clothes anymore. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. By the way, Elijah was using his mantle till the end. Now it was Elisha's turn to use the mantle. He picked it up and it, he says he smote the waters and said, I love this, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Watch this. He has a bold question. He's not sitting on the back seat trying to get away from Elijah during his life. He's sitting on the front seat trying to soak it all in. I was talking to Ivan a couple days ago, and I said, you know, when, when, he, when you and I were young preachers, we were trying to jockey and position ourselves to do everything we could to get close to the preacher. We wanted to ask him, tell us what it's like to be a young preacher. Tell us what we need to be preparing to do. Tell us some advice you have. And you know what I don't get right now? A whole lot of the younger generation doing that. But Elisha was. I'd say he's a pretty good example. He had front row determination, and then he was willing to ask a bold question. Where is the Lord God?
God of Elijah. By the way, you study your Bible in Jeremiah chapter 2. And do you know what the problem was with that generation? They didn't ask, where is the Lord God? You know why? They were rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. Now, I believe this. I believe the greatest days of Bible Baptist Church are not in the rearview mirror. I believe the greatest days are ahead. But that will only come when there are some Elishas who listen for the heavenly call, look around at the horrible climate and say, well, God, this is my job right now to do your bidding in this wicked generation and to stand. And then they have a humble consecration. Everybody, everybody, not just some people, not just the deacons, not just the pastoral staff, but everybody, older to younger. And we look to the one who is our master, Jesus. And we say, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Do you know what Elisha did? Are you ready? He asked for a double portion of his spirit. He did twice as many miracles as Elijah. Even after Elisha was dead, a man was buried upon his bones. And as soon as he hit Elisha's bones, he resurrected from the dead. He being dead yet speaketh. I'll tell you, I'd like for the power of God to be so upon my life that long after I'm dead and gone, I'm a threat to the devil and a joy to heaven. That's what double portion faith is. And it's ours for the taking. Would you bow with me in prayer? Now, I preached a burden in my heart tonight. I believe God wants to do some mighty things with everyone in this room. 